And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, March 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what to do in the unlikely event of a reduction in force in your agency. Plus, inside the Commerce Department's plan for a string of new national tech hubs. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Energy Department has a lot to do under the new national cyber strategy, focused heavily on critical infrastructure. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke to two people about this. One was Energy Chief Information Officer Ann Duncan, who discussed the department's own cyber strategy. But first, we'll hear from the director of DOE's Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response Office, Piyush Kumar. I would actually say that the energy sector as a whole has been a little bit more forward-leaning than some of the other critical infrastructure sectors when it comes to security. You know, when you think of even our partnerships with the electricity sector through organizations such as the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council that is comprised of CEOs that come and meet with us at a very senior level on the government side, both with us at uh, the Department of Energy, but also our interagency partners. The sector has taken cybersecurity uh, very seriously, and and we've been doing a lot of work in that. With that said, the national cyber strategy is really a strategy for the nation. It is what everybody needs to be doing across all of the sectors, but it also helps message what more we need to be doing. So, for example, in the strategy, it talks about securing our clean energy future, and that is an area that we are really focused on here at Caesar. And we are partnering with other offices at DOE, for example, our Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office. We started working with them to say, how do we ensure that as you're developing these next generation wind, solar, EV related efforts, how do we ensure that cybersecurity is built in? And so this really helps to not only signal to the traditional cyber community, but my hope it helps signal to other sectors and other communities that uh, certainly, you know, recognize that cyber is important. We see it in the news all the time, but really a, a targeted focus to say we have to ensure cyber is not just important, it is necessary. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, clean energy technologies were one of those, I think, three buckets that the national cyber strategy calls out as kind of future uh, really important uh, technologies to secure. You know, uh, you mentioned the partnering across DOE and, and more broadly with industry. Where, where do you think that needs to go, though? Is that more in the R&D lane right now in terms of cybersecurity and clean energy? Is it actually, you know, putting on, you know, monitoring, monitoring technologies onto existing infrastructure? Is it a mix? Uh, where is that at and where does it need to go? So when it comes to clean energy, DOE is going to be investing approximately $62 billion in the energy sector over the next five to 10 years as a result of the president's bipartisan infrastructure law. And so how we're thinking about that is a lot of that funding is really focused on building a more secure, clean and resilient energy sector. And so as we're making those investments in the energy sector, and it's going to just accelerate it. So we've already seen those investments being made, right? We're seeing solar panels on residential rooftops. We're already seeing EVs being connected. But the funding we're going to be deploying across the department, that $62 billion, is going to just accelerate it. Not to mention all the private investments we're going to see as a result of this focus on clean energy. So, so we have a strategic opportunity now to say, how do we include cybersecurity requirements in that going forward? Um, we have formed a CSER-led effort with all of the other offices executing funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to ensure that cybersecurity considerations will be made. And so plans from the infrastructure law, whether it's a, an initiative led by our renewable energy office, or whether it's an initiative led by our nuclear energy office, if it has a digital connectivity to it, we and CSER are going to be working with those offices in partnership with the national laboratories to ensure that there are cyber requirements also built in. Got it. And then uh, really quickly, I know this is something that you know GAO has called out in the past, and obviously this national cyber strategy looks heavily at critical infrastructure. Does DOE and CSER have any plans to further assess cyber risks to the electric grid and potentially update its sector-specific plans? 
we actually have a review going on right now and is being led by our National Renewable Energy Laboratory, where we've pulled together over 100 subject matter experts to really focus in on the cyber risk of the distribution system and the DER community. And, and really the idea behind that is, you know, the grid is changing. We're going from large centralized generation to more distributed decentralized generation when we see all of the solar and wind connecting. And so how does that change our cybersecurity risk going into the future? And so if we can start to do that assessment now and see where the grid is heading as we see this energy transition um, underway with all these investments being made, let's do an assessment of what the cyber risk looks like so that we can start to address it through, again, the policies, the tools and technologies, and then the partnerships with industry and manufacturers and others. So that assessment is underway right now. And the expectation is later this fall, we'll have a report out that will help identify what, what does that cyber risk look like so that we can then use that to help inform our work going forward as an organization. And again, that was Piyush Kumar, Director of DOE's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security and Emergency Response, or CSER. I also spoke with Piyush's colleague, Energy CIO Ann Duncan, about the new national cyber strategy. My team and CSER were involved in the process because it's both federal systems as well as critical infrastructure. In fact, the, the strategy heavily leans towards critical infrastructure, but pretty much everybody agreed it's really important to keep federal systems in there as well, because obviously federal systems are critical to our success as a nation. And so we wanted to make sure that stayed in there. So it was incredibly collaborative. Departments and agencies have been involved all along. You know, we really feel like it was a process in which departments and agencies were heard, I often talk about the fact that we get so much better results when we get lots of voices in the room and, you know, we get lots of positions and diversity. And, and this is an example, I think, where we got great results from getting lots of people in the room. So that said, you know, we are in DOE. We're deeply committed to improving cybersecurity and resilience to the departments, networks and assets. We've got 17 national labs. Power Marketing Administration is part of my responsibility area, which is where Pusha and I work closest together because Power Marketing Administrations are critical infrastructure in the electrical arena. They sell the power that is generated by our Western dams and some other assets and run the grid in 35 states. So we have a deep concern about keeping those operating keeping that resilient and making sure that we provide power and that we don't have outages. We have been in the process of updating our DOE cybersecurity strategy. We're very close to being done, and we've been holding to make sure that we were behind the national cyber strategy in case anything changed, but also we just really didn't want to get out ahead of it. We're going to be releasing our cybersecurity strategy in the near future, which will align with that national strategy. And I think you know one of the most important points for us is that we will employ a collective defense. If you've listened to Chris Inglis, he talked about collective defense all the time, and that is our approach to cybersecurity. And that's collaboration across the federal government with the private sector and with our like-minded partners and allies around the world. So we want to work together. It, one thing I wanted to ask about stemming from the strategy, too, is within that pillar one, it, it talks about the sector risk management agencies. I'm just wondering, at, as DOE, one of those sector risk management agencies, any more information at this point on terms of opportunities that are out there for investing at an agency like yours? What, what kind of investments might need to be made stemming from these broad goals? So I think, you know, from our standpoint with the power market administrations, we've been very focused on a couple things, right? So, so OT has not gotten enough attention in the past. And so we are very focused on OT security with the power marketing administrations and on ensuring that we have the right abilities to understand what's going on in their networks traffic wise. We're also working with them to pilot OT control systems in the cloud. Currently, from a regulatory standpoint, that we can't do that, but we're, you know, we're trying to do a proof of concept and be able to then work with the regulators to move that forward. We're really, like I said, trying to work with them to ensure they have all the tools that they need to understand their environment. And then on top of that, what we always do, which is sharing information with them and gathering information from them to understand the threats that are out there and the threats they're experiencing. And then we work to share that amongst all four of them. Ann Duncan, CIO at the Energy Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You also heard from Piyush Kumar, Director of the Office of Cybersecurity, Energy, Security, and Emergency Response. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, inside the Commerce Department's plan for a string of new tech hubs. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Last year's Chips and Science Act spawned new programs across the government. Among them is a $500 million Commerce Department initiative known as Tech Hubs. Now Commerce's Economic Development Administration is asking the public how the Tech Hub program might work. We get details now from the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, Alejandra Castillo. Ms. Castillo, good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom, and looking forward to this great conversation. And before we get to the details, what exactly does the Commerce Department envision a tech hub being? Right now, we're looking at tech hubs as an opportunity to have communities and places across the country build and evolve innovation centers to accelerate a region's evolution into a global leader in an industry of the future. So think about it. This is an opportunity for us to look at communities, their assets, the industries that are in those regions, and think about what are the different ingredients that would need to be in place in order to create a productive tech hubs. And I want to also say tech hubs is an opportunity for the U.S., to look at economic development alongside national security as well. So there's a lot in the legislation, and I invite your listeners to look at the legislation to see those areas that we're looking at with regards to the industries. A lot of times people look to Silicon Valley, which is actually no longer Silicon, but it's a valley where there is a tech hub, you might say, one of the original tech hubs of the modern economic era. And the one thing that really spawned it was the closeness of very large, successful, and high-end computer science and electrical engineering programs academically. Is that a requirement, do you think, for the next set of tech hubs? I'll draw you back to the legislation, to the statute, because the statute actually requires there are five particular must-have ingredients and then 13 additional ingredients that could also come into play. You're absolutely right. You look at Silicon Valley industries that really were at the forefront. You may also want to look at Austin, Texas. You may also want to look at the Research Triangle. But there were other ingredients like a university, community colleges, the workforce development as well, component to it. Unions were participating in this as well. So when I mentioned the different ingredients that come in to producing a tech hub, uh, or creating the tech hubs of the future. Um, there are many actors and players, and that's exactly why this RFI, this request for information, is so important, because there is no particular recipe, so to speak. We are asking the public, tell us what's happening in your communities. How do you see your region being competitive for tech hubs? Give us some guidance and some other elements that we may not be privy to as we think about the creation and the design of tech hubs. Because some tech hubs, I guess you can call them tech hubs, the type of idea you're talking about, have occurred somehow spontaneously in, let's call the ashes of old industries. I'm thinking of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, very much a high-tech town built over what used to be steel mills. And I don't know what the secret ingredient there was, but I think workforce and academia are two big elements. Correct. And like that, you know, I travel this country extensively. Like that, you have um, so many different places where there has been a legacy industry. I think about Wichita, Kansas with aerospace. We just made very big investments under the American Rescue Plan in 21 different regions across the country, which were based of true assets in, in different industries. That was the Build Back Better regional challenge. Tech Hub is different. Tech Hub is more on the regional side. We're looking at no particular city or particular boundaries. We're looking at regions that have an array of assets that can actually be, in some ways, futuristic, if you will, because these are industries that are still in a phase that with a certain level of infusion of resources and capital, they can get to that next level of growth and scalability. And again, there are many notions of what a tech hub is. From the EDA perspective, a tech hub is not a building. 
A tech hub is a region that comes into play to really spur that economic vitality and activity. We're speaking with Alejandra Castillo. She's Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. And there are areas of the country that once had hubs, maybe not tech hubs, but maybe it was textiles, maybe it was shoe manufacturing, all of these industries that are pretty much gone for the most part. And yet you have an area and you still have people, but you don't have those tech hub maybe ingredients. There's no famous engineering school nearby. Is it the sense of commerce, your sense that investments can be made for where there's only the willingness and the workforce, but yet somehow spawn the other ingredients needed to have a really vibrant hub that has sustainability. Tom, I know that this conversation today will focus on tech hubs, but I also want to make sure that I'm introducing another program that also EDA is building out, and that's Recompete. The Recompete program, we received $200 million. And that program, I'm bringing it to bear because that program is to focus in areas that are highly distressed. And it's important to note we're working on tech hubs where there may be some ingredients, some assets, some elements that can actually spring up a technology of the future. But then those areas that are highly distressed, we need to bring them along. And that's what Recompete is. So with these two particular programs that came out of the Chips and Science Act, EDA is now able to be much more holistic in the investments that we make because we try to meet communities where they are. It would be irrational to think that uh, a community that has been distressed for 30, 40 years is all of a sudden going to become a tech hub. We want to make sure that we're guiding along, shepherding along with these very targeted investments to make sure that communities are sure. putting in those ingredients. I see the distinction. So getting back to the tech hubs then, who are you reaching out to with this RFI? I mean, what types of people, organizations are in the best position to respond? We have sent out this RFI very, very broadly both to private sector as well as to public entities, whether it's the mayors, the governors, obviously our congressional members, to universities, to community colleges, to unions, to nonprofit organizations, to philanthropy as well. The investments that the government will make are just a portion. We're going to need not just a very broad array of stakeholders to be involved in the design, but also in the investment side as well. Hence why I mentioned not just the government and the private sector, but also philanthropic entities that will come in to make the investments even more robust. So it could be philanthropic entities and also investing for profit entities. Correct. Correct. Again, the tech hubs, as we have analyzed it through history, have been made possible because of very eclectic group of individuals coming in with a very strategic mission to propel a particular industry. And that's what you've seen in so many places across the country that have been very successful. Right, because a $500 million program for commerce, that's like a tenth of some of the single investments made in startups that produce nothing, frankly, for a few years. Well, I also want to put it into context. You know, the Chips and Science Act actually authorized Tech Hub at $10 billion. Under the omnibus bill, we received $500 million, a bit of a small down payment on it. So it is our interest to make sure that as we move forward with the Tech Hub design, the Tech Hub designation, the Tech Hub planning grants, that we're actually looking at those places that are well-suited to be successful so that we have a very positive showing to get the remaining dollars and be able to invest more broadly across the country. And let's say these nonprofits and these non-governmental organizations, if you will, you know, the domestic ones and private investors come together and agree and kind of synchronize, here's a good potential tech hub. What is it that the government will buy with the government investment? So let me just uh, hone in on one very special element there. The statute requires consortia. So these entities will have to come together. That's really the secret sauce of EDA programs. It's the coalitions, it's the partnerships that must come together with a shared vision of what Tech Hubs is. Once that is done, the proposals will come in. We will be releasing the notice of funding opportunities sometime later in the spring to make sure that not only are we letting individuals know what type of investments we're looking at, and that's why this request for information is so important, because this is how we as the government will be able to actually put in place elements that are much more attuned 
to regional economic development efforts. But the federal funding will mostly be for purposes of planning and consortia development and not necessarily the investments in the elements of the tech hub itself. That's correct. There'll be a phased approach of designations, phased approach with regards to planning grants that will be provided. And then the award, which will range at a much higher level, will be done afterwards when these planning grants have been um, executed. And how do you know when you're finished? I mean, you know, going back to the original Silicon Valley, you know, that turned out to have funded not just a industry, but a region of a couple of million people that is self-sustaining now. And it has moved, as I mentioned earlier, from Silicon to mainly software now. But the ecosystem of development, of funding, of venture capital and so forth seems to be self-sustaining for the foreseeable future. How do you know when a tech hub has made it? Well, I think you just made the case. It's that self-sustainability. When the region in itself becomes there enough of the critical mass to propel it and to make it self-sustaining, where the government may not need to make those big investments any longer, but maybe the private sector, universities, nonprofit, philanthropy are all coming together to continue to evolve and sustain that growth. That's one of many elements. I also have to say that it's about uh, having a, a very inclusive economy and an economy that not only is good for those who are enmeshed in the industry, but also for the surrounding areas where workers are part of that industry, where we have a much more integrated and inclusive element of the entire society. Some people may argue that Silicon Valley has been fantastic, but there have been communities that have also been left behind. Under the Biden administration, our commitment is to make sure that it's from the bottom up, middle out, and that we don't leave communities behind. So that's another element of well, knowing whether it's been successful. And just from a program standpoint, the RFI is out. When does it close and what is the immediate next step once you have your comments and information gathered? So the RFI was issued a few weeks ago. It's a 30-day window. I believe it closes March 16th. We're looking at folks from all walks of life. Please uh, send us your best ideas, your concepts. We're going to be reviewing that very carefully and taking much note as we continue to develop and design the program. And again, the funding opportunities, those will come later this year, later this spring, towards summer? Towards summer, we will be issuing a notice of funding opportunity, NOFO. So be on the lookout for that as well. Alejandra Castillo is Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what's next for the Biden administration's up, up, up budget proposal? But first, what to do in the unlikely event of a reduction in force at your agency? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. There's little chance the layoffs that have affected some industries will affect government. If anything, agencies are hiring. But reductions in force have occurred occasionally over the years, and if that's the case, or maybe you're just worried, what exactly are your rights and options? For a review, we turn to Tully Rinky managing partner Michael Fallings. Mr. Fallings, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We haven't seen a reduction in force. They tend to be, I think, more spot-applied because of a particular small agency or mission that might be affected. But what causes reductions in force in general from your experience? Typically, it's reorganizations that result in job eliminations or shortages of funds from a particular organization that would cause a reduction in force. And have you seen that occur much in recent years? Yes, typically through the reorganizations that federal agencies will do when they're looking to combine positions, consolidate different organizations, 
they'll reduce their force and look to just have a particular person in a position. And what is the proper process by which they decide who gets the boot and who gets to stay? There are federal regulations that control the reduction of force procedures. There's factors that the agencies have to consider. It relies upon veterans' preference, whether a particular employee has veterans' preference, but also the employee's tenure um, of the employment, their type of appointment, their length of service, and their performance ratings are also factors that a federal agency will have to consider in a reduction of force. Right. So the agency manager making the decision then has got a lot of things to balance. Someone could have been there as a veteran for 15 years, but if they're a terrible performer, can that person go ahead of someone who's been there two years, but as a stellar performer doing similar work? Well, I mean, the agency managers aren't the only ones. They'll be working with the agency's labor relations departments as well. And in each situation depends as well as who would be potentially separated, who would be reassigned, you know, as far as whether somebody's performing better than the other. It also, you know, like I said, depends on the veteran's preference of the employee, the length of the service. Um, so each situation would depend. Well, does bargaining unit representatives, unions have a say in it? Yeah, there are employees that are represented by unions through the collective bargaining agreement that they would have a right to petition or or file grievances regarding what occurs for that employee. All right. So what is the best way for agency managers to go about the decision? There's a lot of variables. There might be a union contract in there. There could be a clause that covers reductions in force, I imagine, too, because these are long contracts. So what are some specific ways to begin the process? Because it sounds like you could get hit for a wrongful dismissal process no matter what you do. Yes. I mean, it is a difficult situation for any employee to go through a reduction of force being laid off. So managers need to understand that, but they also need to be sure they're treating everyone equally because that's sort of common complaints that people may have is that they're not being treated equally or fairly. And that's going with following the procedures that are set forth in the regulations, considering those factors and, and relying upon their legal representatives for the agencies and also just the labor relations department to ensure that you're implementing equal treatment across the board. And what are some of the important elements of that process as it's outlined? And this is in the statutes? Yes. And that goes back to the factors I mentioned as far as the type of appointment, the performance of the employees, how long they've worked there. Typically, like I've said, that this occurs when there's a reorganization or cost-cutting measure. So there is not just the manager that's making the decision. There's other people that are involved in determining what costs to cut. So those are factors in making sure you're applying equal treatment to the jobs you are cutting and you're consolidating are things that need to be considered when you're implementing this reduction in force. We're speaking with Michael Fallings. He's managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinke, which has a long experience representing federal employees in these kinds of matters. What about buyouts? Because once in a while, an agency will offer a buyout in lieu of forcing people out or people can take early retirement. When do you go to that particular option? Severance or payment of employees does occur for separating, but the employee does have to be, for federal government purposes, has to be with the federal government for at least 12 months. But, you know, that is an option that the employee could take advantage of. However, they also have to consider any reassignment or jobs that have been offered, and they can't decline particular assignments that are in their commuting area or that they're eligible for to be eligible for severance payments. But that does occur, and an employee, as long as they meet those requirements, are eligible for the payments you know that a government may offer. But is there a difference between a severance payment and a generally offered buyout program that people volunteer for? I would say it's about the same. I mean, a government agency is offering to pay money to an employee for separating, you know, and the government agencies, there's procedures to do that. I believe it's about the same as far as a government agency agreeing to pay money to an employee or a buyout, as you're calling it, for an employee to separate. Well, a buyout, I think of as something offered generally, and the first 100 people that decide they are willing to leave can get the $25,000, usually is what it is, and off they go and they can get their annuity, whereas a severance might be issued singly to selected individuals that have no choice departing. Do you think that's a fair distinction? Well, well, I don't think so, because I think people do have a choice, even with the severance option. Um, As far as the retirement aspect, people have to be eligible for retirement. And so if they are eligible for retirement, people do get a choice to going through a RIF procedure to take advantage of the retirement option and retire in that fashion. 
All right. So what are the employee's rights in such a case when there's a reduction in force coming because of, say, a reorg or the agency's budget was cut and Congress says you've got this many fewer billets? Well, they're still eligible to file complaints through the different offices that a federal employee may have, you know, an EEO office, uh, uh, Office of Inspector General's office. Um, if they believe that, you know, the action is not being taken fairly or taken in retaliation, of course, they're not in agreement with that. Their job is being taken um, or being reduced. So those options are still available to the employees, um, as well as, as we mentioned, you know, contacting their union representative and filing grievances if they believe the procedures aren't being conducted fairly or, or appropriately in line with the policies. And if someone is designated to go and they get the severance or they're offered the severance and your last day is Friday, see you later, and they decide to file a grievance, do they get to stay at the agency during the course of the grievance or do they have to just be off premises? Typically, no, they do not get to stay at the agency. You would be able to file a grievance and that doesn't prolong your employment. I say typically because there may be a chance to negotiate with an agency. You know, if you file a grievance, the agency may be willing to discuss an alternative other than a severance, maybe a reassignment. But typically, if there's an effective date for their separation and that's when it will occur, then you could file a grievance within a certain period of time or even beforehand. But you would still be separated on that date. It sounds like agencies that are contemplating this requirement to have a reduction in force for whatever reason really need to think about who's the reduced way in advance of this actually happening. It seems like they would have to have a game plan that is getting them to the levels they're entitled to in terms of number of positions, but also that the decisions can be supported should they be challenged. Yes, and I think that takes more than days or even weeks. It takes months of decision-making and planning, you know, especially when you're dealing with supervisory positions, perhaps, when you're trying to consolidate supervisors and you're eliminating supervisory positions, even when you're just demoting people. You know, people going through these situations are going to be understandably upset, and that's going to cause them to contact a legal representative or just look through different legal avenues to ways to challenge the action. So agencies do have to be prepared and have discussions through their managers, their different departments, and have a plan set forth so they can defend the action that they're taking. Is it okay for an agency management to say, look, in a year we're going to have a riff, or in six months we know we're going to have to let a certain number of people go? You may start looking now for another position somewhere else in the government. We don't know who's going to be laid off, but if you're worried, now's the time to be looking around. Is that a kind of a kosher way to ask people to, to think about it? Well, typically the notices, I think, required. However, the notice is specific to particular people. I've seen in my experience that, okay, a RIF is going to occur. Your position will be affected, effective in about a month or, or two months or whatever the date is. These are the procedures you could take advantage of to get reemployed or be reassigned. As far as a general, hey, we're going to eliminate this office. I don't advise an agency to do that because that will obviously cause, you know, scare and nervousness and may lead to certain employees leaving, even though they may not be affected. Usually it's a specific notice of specific employees or a specific office. Right. So if a particular program is going to be canceled and that involves 22 people that are working on that program, it's no longer funded. It sounds like the agency can make a cut and dry decision. The program's gone, so the people connected to it are gone. It's never quite that clean and cut and simple, is it? It's never that, <laughs> that clean and cut. But the agency can provide notice to those affected employees and you know offer them the severance or offer them a chance to apply elsewhere and give them consideration and applying elsewhere or reassigning them to a different office. All right. Anything else we need to know? Do you anticipate this happening anytime in the near future anywhere? I don't anticipate it specifically happening, but, you know, in today's day and age, you, you never know. Um, I think, like we talked about, specific organizations make different changes and different reorgs, and that happens frequently. Um, I think employees should always be aware of their rights, like we talked about, that they still have rights to contact their union to file a grievance or even through an administrative grievance process or even filing through an EEO or Office of Inspector General's office if they believe discrimination or retaliation is at play. All right. Michael Fallings is managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what's next for the Biden administration's up, up, up budget proposal? 
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The release of a White House budget proposal resembles nothing so much as the drop of a hockey puck. Now comes the nasty scrambling. An enacted 2024 budget will probably take months and probably occur after the fiscal year starts, but there's more to come. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Aside from the cliches, you know, that this is dead on arrival, what does this whole process look like days after the drop of the uh, hockey puck? Well, I think to carry on your uh, analogy with the hockey, I think we are going to see a lot of lawmakers getting blasted into the boards back and forth for the next several months. This is a huge fight in the making. And we're already seeing that uh, just in the end of last week with some of the hearings, the House Ways and Means Committee pressing Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen right away from the get-go. Republicans have made it very clear that they are not only calling this dead on arrival, but they are just going to pick over it like vultures and look at all the things that are inside that nearly $6.9 trillion proposal from the White House, which of course is a wish list, a blueprint. And what we're going to see is a real fight in a lot of these, particularly in these House committees with Republicans really pushing back hard on a lot of these proposals that are inside of uh, this huge spending plan, which the White House likes to say is going to reduce deficits in some areas. But of course, it will increase spending uh, potentially by uh, close to $2 trillion over a decade. And then on the other side, Democrats are saying, well, and the president is saying, where is your plan, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? What are you going to do if this is such a horrible proposal? Why don't you have your own plan? Well, Republicans say they will have their own proposals, but they are going to wait and let this basically stew for a while. Uh, the House Budget Committee Chairman uh, Arrington from Texas has already said that uh, he probably won't have any kind of uh, real proposal until potentially even May, although uh, his spokesman later walked that back a little bit and said maybe late in April. But nonetheless, we're going to see a lot of back and forth uh, on the ice here uh, in Connecticut with this fight. Well, it even took Faulkner months and months to write a piece of fiction, so it's no reason why either party can't take their time in getting this budget out. But within that 6.9 or nearly $7 trillion plan, of course, that sounds bigger than the annual federal budget because that's all the spending, including the entitlements and the interest on the national debt. Where in that will the discussions come for that roughly 1.5, 1.6 trillion piece of it that is the daily operation of the government itself, which federal employees need to know that they'll have to do their jobs. Right. And that's going to actually have to be plucked out of all of that over the next several months. And House Republicans are saying that they want this to get, in some respects, back to regular order, that it will actually go through committees, that uh, they've already allowed for amendments on the House floor. They are trying in their own way to get things back to essentially the way things used to be, uh, largely in in connection with spending plans. But as you are well aware, the Senate has, over the last several years, many years, has just not come up with appropriations bills until everything got to that last-minute point, which is what we saw last year. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Are they going to, from the House and Senate side, actually try to get back to what it used to be, or are we going to eventually devolve into what it has been over the last several years? Of course, all of this could be complicated with the uh, raising of the debt ceiling, because if that gets really complicated and gets right to the edge, then I think all bets are off. And we're just going to see all these this talk about potentially getting through things through committee and then bringing them to the House. All the orderliness uh, that potentially could be in Congress will just be set to the side. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And there is a House Ways and Means, a Republican bill, though, on the default prevention. I think it's called the Default Prevention Act. Correct. And that sets down some kind of throws down a hockey puck in its own way also. Yeah, this is a huge deal because uh, Republicans are trying to figure out other ways to push the envelope on raising the debt ceiling. And one of these is this proposal for the Default Prevention Act, which came up in the House Ways and Means Committee last week. The new chairman, Jason Smith, has been very aggressive on pushing back on 
spending priorities from the Biden administration. And essentially, if you oversimplify it, Republicans say that there should be a way that the U.S. can prioritize what it is going to pay down. It's as if you were looking at your credit card bill and said, "Okay, these are the largest items that I need to pay. This is the one I really need to make sure that we uh, get taken care of. On the other side, Democrats say that there is just no way that you can do this. And they actually tried to turn the tables last week. And Republicans have hammered the Democrats on China. Well, in the Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, the ranking Democrat on the panel, said, well, essentially, Republicans are saying they're they're willing to pay China for its bills and any kind of foreign creditors while putting the military at risk and not paying veterans and, and benefits for people in the United States. Now, Jason Smith, the chairman, pushed back on that and said, this is not what we're trying to do. He says that they can try to prioritize Social Security, trust fund, the Federal Reserve, pension funds, etc. However, uh, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, has said uh, very clearly that she does not think that this is really possible, that you could n- it's just too complicated. You cannot prioritize all of these payments and that you will effectively cause as much financial damage as you would if you would go to a default if you tried this approach. All right, so this is all still pushed down the line for the time being, but now we are seeing the outlines of the battle. Some tangible accomplishments did happen, though, last week. The Senate confirmed the new IRS commissioner. How did that go? Of course, I guess that's a be careful what you wish for situation, walking into what is in many ways another one of these crucibles. Right. Yes. Uh, So the new commissioner, Daniel Werfel, was uh, pretty easily confirmed. Only one Democrat uh, voted against him. That was West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Werfel is going to be under a lot of pressure because Congress has, of course, approved close to $80 billion toward improving the agency, uh, making its response times quicker, uh, getting all of these issues, like even the simple thing of picking up the phone and having somebody answer it from the IRS. Uh, Werfel has said during his confirmation hearings that those are some of the things he wants to try to do, but uh, Republicans have made it clear that they don't really think that this is going to be money well spent. So they are going to be going over it very, very closely about how the money is actually allocated? Uh, does you know money that goes to IT and improving computers, because we know that the computers at the IRS are uh, hopelessly way out of date, that will this all this money, is it going to be spent correctly? And Republicans have made it very clear they are going to be, as I said, watching all of this money very closely. So Werfel, uh, really under a lot of pressure, as you said, be careful what you wish for, because he's under a lot of scrutiny. And there's another possibility, again, on the practical front, that the Biden budget proposal has lots of tax law changes in there, tax increases in many, many areas, repealing of other provisions that were already in the tax code. And depending on the time of year these things get passed into law, that could really affect the IRS's ability to turn those into their computer codes such that what happens when you file with the IRS reflects the latest version of the tax code. Right, because they've been really behind and they've been trying to basically pay play catch up throughout the pandemic. And now they're getting close to that point where they say that they're really getting to the level that they should be at, even though they're still behind, not nearly as far behind as they were before. But as you say, with all of these new implementations, it gets complicated. And with the new changes in the tax code and having to put all of that into effect, that's a lot of work for that agency, which has already been under a lot of pressure. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Congress, divided over nearly everything, can't decide on an issue with long-term implications for the Veterans Affairs Department. Keep putting billions of dollars into the troubled Electronic Health Records Project or cut bait and modernize the legacy system, VISTA. VA technicians, they've been using that one for decades. The Biden administration wants to push on with the new system. House Republicans are asking VA how long it can run the old VISTA system. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. The Department of Veterans Affairs is telling Congress a new multi-billion dollar electronic health record from vendors Oracle and Cerner is the best way to provide care for its patients, despite a troubled rollout and House lawmakers threatening to pull the plug on the project. 
The Oracle Cernan project is running behind schedule and over budget. It's gone live at five of 171 VA medical centers across the country, but further launches are on hold until at least this summer, while the VA troubleshoots persistent outages and patient safety issues flagged by its inspector general. Implementation of the EHR project was expected to cost $16 billion over 10 years, but an independent third-party assessment finds the VA will likely spend more than twice that. The Biden administration in its fiscal 2024 budget request is asking for nearly $2 billion to keep funding the Oracle Cerner EHR. But top Republicans on the House VA committee say the administration is throwing good money after bad on a lemon of a project. Instead, House Republicans are calling on the VA to put that money towards patching up the old reliable station wagon that is Vista, the legacy EHR that clinicians have been using for 40 years. Regardless of what Congress as a whole will support, the VA in the near term, and to extend this automotive metaphor, will be a two-car household. In essence, we are supporting two EHR systems simultaneously until the Cerner implementation is complete. That's Daniel McCune, VA's Executive Director of Software Product Management. He told the House VA Committee's Subcommittee on Technology Modernization last week that the VA will need to rely on VISTA for at least another 5 to 10 years, if not longer. In the interim, VISTA remains our authoritative source of veteran data. McCune says the VA plans to modernize VISTA over the coming years to provide uninterrupted care to veterans, but he tells lawmakers there are limits to what VISTA can provide compared to more modern health record systems. VISTA is an old technology, ill-suited for the modern digital age. Modernization would require VISTA be rewritten almost from scratch at a great cost and great risk. McCune says the VA plans to modernize VISTA over the coming years to provide uninterrupted care to veterans, but he tells lawmakers there are limits to what VISTA can provide compared to more modern health record systems. VISTA has served VA and veterans for over 40 years, and we are aware of its limitations. It doesn't have modern capabilities like artificial intelligence, machine learning, mobile and web access, and capabilities providers and veterans expect and deserve from a modern cloud-native EHR. McCune says VA has moved 20 instances of Vista to the cloud so far and plans to migrate another 54 instances of Vista to the cloud before the end of this year. McCune estimates that each migration of Vista to the cloud costs the VA about $70,000. The VA originally intended to complete the rollout of the Oracle Cerner EHR over 10 years. It first went live in October 2020 in Spokane, Washington. But the VA has been in an assess and address period since last October to address known issues with the EHR and to determine whether it's ready to launch at additional sites. The EHR delays and disruptions have frustrated congressional leaders, chief among them Technology Modernization Subcommittee Chairman Matt Rosendale. The reality is, regardless of whether the Oracle Cerner implementation can be accomplished and regardless of how we feel about that, the VA will probably continue to rely on VISTA for at least another decade. And some of the elements of VISTA will probably never go away because no replacement even exists. Medical centers all over the country and the veterans they serve cannot be left in limbo. Rosendale is leading two new bills that would alter the course of VA's EHR rollout. One bill would prevent the VA from implementing the Oracle Cerner EHR at additional facilities until the system has achieved a 99.9% uptime at VA medical facilities that are already running the new system. Another separate bill would force the VA to completely pull the plug on the Oracle Cerner EHR. While Rosendale is urging the VA to keep modernizing VISTA rather than proceed with the Oracle Cerner rollout, agency officials say the VISTA system is running on borrowed time. McCune, however, says it's not clear just how long the VA will need to keep VISTA around. On the VISTA side of the house, we are cognizant that is an interim solution that end date is indeterminate at this point. So we are making investments in VISTA to make sure that it is resilient. We maintain the level of performance that we have today. So we are not stopping work on VISTA. We realize it's going to be around for a long time. Part of the problem is that Vista runs in part on an outdated programming language called Mumps. The VA employs a team of Mumps programmers to support Vista, but about 70% of them are eligible to retire. And McCune says Mumps programmers are hard to come by. There are few Mumps programmers today. Mumps is not taught in computer science classes, and the pool of Mumps programmers shrinks every year as they retire. The VA has yet to see those retirement-eligible programmers leave the agency. 
The VA had more than 1,100 full-time employees working on Vista in 2022, nearly the same level of staffing it had a decade ago. But McCune says the retirement eligibility of the Vista workforce has been creeping up year over year. VA is fortunate to have dedicated MUMPS programmers supporting Vista. They understand millions of lines of code developed over 40 years, and they also understand VA clinical business processes. They're committed to enabling clinicians, supporting veteran outcomes, and we've been able to retain them and their knowledge much longer than a typical workforce. McCune also says the VA is struggling to keep Vista integrated with the rest of its more modern network. Vista is a member of VA's expansive and complex ecosystem of software and infrastructure. The size and complexity of that technology ecosystem has nearly doubled in the last five years, and most of that growth has been in modern cloud-native applications. MUMPS programmers are increasingly challenged keeping Vista integrated in a growing ecosystem that is architected very differently from the system designed 40 years ago. Regardless of how well Vista can perform for the future, current employees seem to enjoy it. In a survey of VA employees using the Oracle Cerner EHR, 78% of respondents said it didn't help them deliver high-quality care, but 64% said the VISTA system did help them provide quality care to veterans. McCune says the VA workforce is accustomed to how well the VISTA system operates and that more training is needed for employees to feel comfortable with the Oracle Cerner system. With VISTA, we have a relatively stable system one that's been in production for 40 years. So our clinicians, our users are very, very familiar with that system. What we also have happening is a brand new system, a Cerner system. So I think there is some element of change management there. There's some element of newness that has to be considered there. VA's Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Health for Clinical Services, Thomas O'Toole, says the VISTA EHR isn't able to provide some functions that are available in more modern healthcare systems, but he does say the VISTA system is familiar to VA clinicians. There is a muscle memory associated with using it for quite some time that I believe providers are comfortable with. They know how to use it. They know how to navigate the system, and it's worked well for us. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 